Please pray with me. Father, we bless your name for the gift of your word. Thank you for this scripture that is in our hands this morning. And we thank you for your word made flesh, your son, who came to die for us. And we long, Lord, that we would have your word dwelling in us richly this morning um, to do its work in us. Lord, have your way with us this morning. Um, and please open your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This will be the last sermon that I will preach to you before I leave for a two-month sabbatical this summer. Um, so I stand up here today with some sadness. Um, it's true. It's true, honestly. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, and not least because the text that the Lord has given us to hear this morning is really a, a sad and heavy text. Um, and I confess that as I've studied it this week, I've been under the shadow of it. As the more I've looked into it, the kind of sadder it has seemed and become. Um, so we've got three sections to look at from Matthew chapter 7 today. Uh, and in the first paragraph, we heard our Lord Jesus say, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And when we heard those words, our hearts sank. Then in the second paragraph, we heard him say, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, and our hearts sank still further. And then finally, in the third paragraph, we heard Jesus say, On the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And our hearts hit the floor. These are hard words, aren't they? Um, there's nothing in this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount that anyone would want to crochet onto a pillow. <laughs> um, and it's perhaps not the hopeful note of encouragement from God's word that I might have chosen to go out on before my sabbatical. Where is the light in these verses? Where is the good news? Well, it is there. Uh, and we're going to keep digging today until we get there. But first, we need to be fully awake to the painful reality that Jesus sets before us here at the very end of his great Sermon on the Mount. It ends very strikingly with a severe warning to his people and also an invitation. So if you haven't found it already, uh, please turn now to Matthew chapter 7 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 7 is page 812, and we're going to begin at chapter 7, verse 13. Page 812, Matthew 7, verse 13. And the big idea of this section is to watch out for lies and liars. Lies and liars are everywhere, Jesus warns us. First, in verses 13 and 14, the world is telling lies. Second, in verses 15 through 20, the devil is telling lies in the church. And third, in verses 21 through 23, our own hearts are telling us lies. So we meet our three old enemies in this section, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus warns us that they're out to deceive us. Not a very cheery message, uh, but deep within it is a truth that sets us free. So first, the world is telling lies. What we see in verses 13 and 14 is most of the world heading off in the wrong direction. 
Jesus warns that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. So imagine in your mind then a city gate that's made for high volumes of foot traffic. It's wide, it's open, it's cleared of obstacles. Hundreds of people pass through it every minute. The road behind the gate is paved and smooth. It's clean and tidy. There are trees and nice flower beds along the way, food and drinks vendors to refresh you. You know what? I realize I'm basically describing Main Street in the Magic Kingdom in Disneyland, <laughs> right? <clears throat> that main road with the pretty stores on each side that leads straight up to Cinderella's castle, yeah? Put that image in your head. Thousands and thousands of people happily going on their way. Babies in strollers, children skipping along beside. Think of Main Street in Disneyland when Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Now, I'm not judging the people who go to Disneyland. <laughs> I enjoy a day at Disney as much as anyone. But I just want to use that as an illustration. Friends, that is what it looks like from heaven's perspective while the world hurries on its way to hell. Children skip off on the road to hell happily. The road there is easy. It's pretty. It's convenient. It's colorful. It has been cleared of obstacles and hardships. And the people on that way beckon to others and say, hey, come on, this is great. And for this reason, the world, the whole world is a liar. Every day the world around us tells lies because it tells us that that happy, pretty, well-trodden, easy way is safe when it is not safe. It's Pinocchio's pleasure island. And you're all about to turn into donkeys. This is the primrose path to the everlasting bonfire, as Shakespeare called it. It's a conveyor belt to the crematorium. And the ones who will live are the few, the very few, who manage to get off it in time. In contrast to the broad and easy way to death, Jesus says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now the gate of life wasn't built to be narrow and hard. It was built as another fine, useful city gate. The Greek word for narrow here suggests that it has been made narrow by being stricken, by dereliction and damage and cluttering up with obstacles. So imagine a large gate, half collapsed, almost entirely blocked with boulders, overgrown with vicious weeds and vines, and overrun with snakes and spiders. No one wants to go that way. You might just about get through if you worked at it all day long and used all your strength and got scratched and bitten to pieces in the process. Because the world, in, co in cooperation with the devil, has made the gate of death as clean and as wide and as easy as possible. And it has ruined the gate of life to be almost impassable. The democracy of human sin has voted literally with its feet to make one path very clear and the other very difficult. Because of our own sinfulness and the world we live in, the good way has become hard. It feels unnatural. It's a daily fight. 
Beyond the gate, the path is a rutted deer track, straight up a jagged mountain. Every day is hard and miserable, but at the top of that mountain is life. So Jesus is not much of a salesman, is he? (laughs) He says, choose the narrow gate. Come and suffer. Come and die. Follow me. This is the way to life. Don't listen to the lies of the world. It doesn't matter how many people go that way. It never makes it right. None of them are going to live. And what we notice from his words is that everything about the broad way is a kind of shortcut. It's all a kind of shortcut. Every year since the day Jesus was born until this very day, there have arisen any number of people who will tell you that they have found a shortcut, a shortcut to heaven, an easier way than the cross. Hey, come over here. I found it. We can follow Jesus and not worry about what he says about sexual holiness. We can follow Jesus and still do whatever we want with our money. We can follow Jesus and never talk about him with our non-Christian friends. Here's a shortcut. I found it. This road goes to the same place, and it's much easier. Don't be deceived, friends. The world is lying to you. Jesus told us there's only one narrow way, and it is hard. Anyone who thinks they found a shortcut has really only found a side trail back onto the broad way that goes down to destruction. If your life with God is easy, then you're not on the narrow way. So our first problem then is that the world is telling lies every day, all the time, everywhere we look. But now we also have a second problem in verses 15 through 20, that the devil is also telling lies in the church. Jesus goes on, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So these then are people inside the church itself, which we can demonstrate from three of the details in what Jesus says. First, that Jesus calls them prophets, in Greek, pseudo-prophetes, and prophets are to be found inside the church, not outside. Second, he predicts that they will constantly come to you. So the Christians do not seek these people out, instead they come straight to us looking like insiders. And thirdly, their clothing, they are dressed like sheep. In other words, they're pretending to be disciples of Jesus too, not just Christians, but Christian leaders. So we started with liars out in the world, but now we've got liars inside the church too. Liars who are masquerading as Christian leaders, but they are false pseudo-prophets. They are fakes and frauds and charlatans. Their master is the devil and not the Lord. And I want us to see clearly that these people Jesus is describing here are not to be confused with ordinary Christian prophets or leaders who are nonetheless still sinners. What Jesus is describing here is a person who dresses up as a sheep, but on the inside is a ravenous wolf. And friends, a predator always knows that it's a predator. He knows that his thirst and hunger are for the sheep and not for the Lord. A faker knows the effort he goes to every day to keep faking it. He's under no illusions that the mess on the inside bears any resemblance at all to the kindly facade he presents on the outside. A hypocrite knows he's a hypocrite, that he teaches one thing and does another. He knows all the secrets he keeps. He knows all the work it takes to be that manipulative. So these false prophets Jesus describes in this paragraph do harm intentionally. 
They are present in the church not as well-meaning servants who accidentally misspeak or stumble into sin, but as predators, as active workers of evil, servants of the devil. These we still have in our churches. And we have them alongside our other leaders who confuse the whole situation by also being sinners. (laughs) I'm sorry to say, friends, that every honest priest, pastor, bishop, prophet, and evangelist is a sinner and is going to disappoint you. With all the goodwill in the world, we will still do harm. And that is our great sorrow. The true servants of Jesus would rather die than take the smallest thing away from one of the sheep. And yet, sometimes we still do. And when we do, we should be held fully accountable, of course. But the point here is that an actual false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing, who does harm intentionally, standing next to a legitimate shepherd that is still a fallen person, might not look very different. And you can bet your eye teeth that the false prophet's going to exploit that fact to maximum advantage. The moment the sheep's costume slips a little bit and the wolf nose becomes visible through it, The excuse is always going to be, well, what did you expect? We're all sinners, aren't we? So Jesus steps in here to come to the aid of his flock, to give us a way to tell the difference. And here's his litmus test, beginning of verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And that sounds a lot more simple in in, in theory than it seems to work out in practice, doesn't it? Um, We've all had experiences with this where it was a little harder than that, Jesus. Um, But um, let's start with the the fact that this is a promise, right? He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. He says, you will. Twice he says it. So for starters, let's lean on the promise of Jesus that the sheep will recognize if they're uh, leaning on the shepherd and paying attention. Um, I also want to add some helpful ways that the church has used and interpreted this litmus test over the centuries. The first is that um, the best scholars have said that the fruit that Jesus is talking about here is both simultaneously character fruit and teaching fruit, both at the same time, right? So we're talking about, yes, the fruit of the Spirit present in the leader, but also the words out of his or her mouth, um, the the teaching that comes. Um, Both are evident in the way the apostles discuss false prophets later on in the New Testament. Um, And there are two different kinds, really, because some false prophets that we meet stick to a roughly orthodox message while using tactics of anger, fear, bullying, isolation, and manipulation to use the sheep to their own advantage, while other false prophets have nothing all that concerning in their behavior, but they pour forth an unbiblical message. In either case, the the fruit test works, because we ask that all our genuine leaders uh, both live and teach according to the same standard of truth, according to the standard that we all of us hold in our hands the eternal, unchanging word of God. If the life doesn't match it, they fail the fruit test. And if the teaching doesn't match it, they fail the fruit test. The second thing is that many wise scholars have pointed out that we can only really expect Jesus' fruit test to work in close proximity, right? Uh, It takes personal relationship over time. 
Because unless the disguise is unusually poor, we shouldn't expect to sniff out a false prophet from a great distance merely by reading his books or watching him on YouTube. He might be wrong, but he might still be honest. Close proximity is necessary for the fruit test to really work. So your main Christian influences then should be people that you know personally, that you know well. And thirdly, and similarly, the fruit test works best in a healthy Christian community. Because if the community is honest and open with one another, familiar with the processes of confession and repentance and committed to living in the light, then it provides very few secret hiding places for a false prophet to hide. The less healthy the community, the more its members are already keeping secrets and hiding their sin from each other, the easier it's going to be for the wolf to slip in unnoticed. When a false prophet is discovered in the church, he or she should be removed without hesitation for the protection of the sheep. There might be some soul care to do for the false prophet themselves, but we care for the sheep before we care for the wolf. They are doing the work of the devil and sowing lies in the church. All right, so Jesus is bringing up some serious problems here. First, the world is telling us lies, and second, the devil is telling lies in the church. But now third, maybe worst of all, verses 21 through 23, we find that our own hearts are telling us lies too. Jesus goes on to say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Boy, are we dealing with some heavy stuff this week. So now, uh, this is the problem of self-deception, of self-delusion. We thought we were okay, but we were not okay. There are two different kinds of self-deceived people in this last paragraph. The first kind thought they had a relationship with Jesus, but they were not doing what the Father said. And the second kind were doing all the right things, but they had no relationship with Jesus. So the first kind is in verse 21, the people who looked at Jesus and said, Lord, Lord. And this single repeated word carries a whole lot of weight. There's a whole creed of right belief in those words. In Jewish context, Lord, Lord means they recognize Jesus as Israel's God and Messiah with all the weight of the Old Testament behind that understanding. In the Roman context, Lord, Lord means they recognize Jesus over and against Caesar as the rightful king of kings and the divine son. The repetition of Kyrie, Kyrie, Lord, Lord, is emphatic. It's a just public profession with passion. They're calling upon Jesus as their personal savior. In other words, this is every kind of right belief. But Jesus says it has no kind of obedience. And Jesus wants no part with anyone who says this and doesn't care to do his father's will. Then on the other side is a crowd of hopefuls who were very active in Jesus' name. They said, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. But they had no relationship with Jesus himself. And on the last day, they hear the most bone-chilling sentence imaginable spoken over them. I never knew you. So for two very different reasons, these two groups are both self-deluded The world lies, the devil lies in the church, and also our own hearts lie to us. They tell us things are fine when they are not fine. Our hearts cry out, peace, peace, 
when there is no peace, they utterly fail to warn us of the mortal danger that lies ahead. Yes, Peter, peace, peace. Um, <clears throat> so this then is one of the major reasons that we must never give up on Christian fellowship. It's because we need one another to stay true to our Lord. We are each other's best defense against the lies of our own hearts. Because although all of our hearts lie to us, they don't lie in the same ways. And we can call uncle on each other's lies quite easily. So here's what happens. Upon learning that the world is full of lies, many people flee into the church only to find that the devil has planted liars even in the church, whereupon many decide that this is, and this is increasingly prevalent in our post-COVID era, that the church isn't really safe either. So I'm just going to go and do me. It's going to be me and my household by ourselves. We're safer without the world, and we're safer without the church. But friend, have you forgotten the liar inside you? How are you going to flee him? I expect that among those two crowds on the last day who thought they were safe with God but were not safe, who hear the dreadful words, depart from me, there will be in those two crowds a disproportionate number of people who had given up on the assembly of the church and thought they were safer striking out on their own. Because the New Testament antidote to our own lying hearts is the community of faith. And all the manifold ways that we can help one another if we're together. The New Testament lists that we speak the truth to one another. That we sing songs to one another. We confess to one another. We forgive one another. We accept one another. We show active love to one another. And we spur one another on to love and good works. We kick each other in the pants if we're being lazy about sin or about holiness. When we strive to enter the narrow gate together and walk the narrow path together in the power of the Holy Spirit, we make each other better people, better disciples, truer people. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So even though the organized church is very often disappointing, even though it's all too often a home for hypocrites, full of fighting and soft on sin, The organized church on its worst day is not likely to be as soft on your sin as you will be soft on your own sin. We need one another to stand up to the liar inside. So we've seen a lot of bad news in this passage, a whole lot of lies. And I don't want to hurry past this as if it's not a big deal. It's a tragic reality that hurts us every day. Think about all those people. Would any of them, would any of the unbelievers we know stay locked up in their sin if they could for a single second see the truth? If they could see the real Jesus in his goodness, in his truth, in his beauty, would they stay in the dungeon of their sin? And yet they will live however many decades having the opportunity every day to see it and not seeing it one time because of this huge web of lies that holds them ignorant every day. It makes you weep, doesn't it? This is really, really bad news. But should we despair? Should we give up? Or does Jesus also answer the problem? He answers the problem 
by giving us himself. Here then is the good news that answers all the lies. We hold it in our hands right now, preserved for us 2,000 years later by the power of God, are the very words Jesus spoke on that mountain. We have the warning to issue his warnings about all the liars. But also, Jesus has established himself as the one who is faithful and trustworthy and true, and he has given us his invitation even his command that we enter by the narrow gate. That means, friends, that the narrow gate is now open. It stands open. Jesus himself has opened it for us at the cost of his own body, broken on the cross. The narrow gate is open and the narrow way is clear. It's hard, but it's clear. And we have found it. A couple of hundred of us here have found it. All the lies of the world were not enough to keep you on the broad way. Does it matter how much easier or prettier or simpler that way was if it led to death? No. You have had your eyes opened by the one who is the way and the truth and the life. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He is saving us together and today we have one another. We will hold each other in the truth as the Spirit empowers each one of us. Because the beautiful kingdom pattern Jesus reveals here is that each one of his sheep is given the truth personally, individually. We don't receive it secondhand, but firsthand from the source, from God himself, so that it's possible for each person to answer the call to enter the narrow gate and to use the test of the fruits to weevil out false prophets. You are your own teacher and defender by the Spirit living in you. You are not reliant on other people to introduce you to God. And that's a meaningful instruction from Jesus to use the the test of the fruit because each saint has the Spirit of God and knows God directly. Therefore, no sheep is ultimately a helpless victim of the wolf. Predatory leadership there may be, but the healthy flock will drive it out. Because Jesus lives in this body. He is saving us together. He has given us to one another. So stick together, flock of God. Stop biting each other and be glad you have one another on this hard road with you. Tell each other the truth and spread the good news however you can. Because this world is full of enemies. Enemies out there in the world. Enemies here within the church and right here within our own hearts. But the saint in the pew next to you is not your enemy. He or she is your friend. So encourage one another and pray for one another as the end of the road draws near.